Indeed, Lord, this is our great confidence that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, that we look to you to lead us away from temptation, to guard us and protect us and deliver us from evil and from the evil one. Lord, as we look into your word, would you speak to us in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen. This morning, we're starting a new series in, uh, in back in the Psalms, going to book three in the Psalms. Uh, but it's also Palm Sunday, and I wanted to, to briefly bring those two things together. <clears throat> it, was, it was interesting to be in uh, Jerusalem a few weeks ago, as you know, uh, that's where I was, and getting to stand on the Mount of Olives uh, where the Garden of Gethsemane is and look over across the valley to where the city of Jerusalem is. You could still see that view, and it was, it was neat to think that that I was standing somewhere near where Jesus himself, you know, had passed by on that Palm Sunday. You know, Palm Sunday started near uh, the Mount of Olives, uh, you know, near Bethany or, or Bethpage, not quite sure where. Uh, got on a donkey and rode it from the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem. So we were, we were able to stand there and look to see, you know, where was the potential path that he, that he went. Uh, between the Mount of Olives and Jeru the city of Jerusalem lies the Kidron Valley, another place you probably heard and read about in Scripture, and um, to think, where, would, where did he actually go? Uh, it was a great triumphal entry as he came riding on a donkey. People were putting their palms down so that the donkey could go across them because they were, they were identifying him as the promised Messiah who had come to reclaim his people, to redeem his people, to rescue his people from the oppression that they were experiencing. So there was all this great anticipation of the king that God had proclaimed, that God had established, finally coming to his city of Jerusalem. But it would only be a week later to find that all those expectations seemed to be dashed. And instead of being proclaimed king and recognized and setting them free from their Roman oppressors, instead he was hung on a cross and died and put into a tomb. Hardly the kind of thing that meets the expectations that you have. And, and I wanted to bring that up because dealing with unmet expectations, especially with regard to our faith, is a very hard thing. And it causes doubts to creep in. And the psalmist in Psalm 73, the one we're going to look at this morning, is really showing us how do we deal with our doubts? How do we deal with expectations that we have according to our faith that don't go met, or don't come out as we expect them to be. So I want to invite you, kind of with that thought in mind, how do we deal with unmet expectations? How do we deal with doubts? By looking at Psalm 73 with me, that's what we're going to read. So if you've got your Bible, I encourage you to open to Psalm 73. <clears throat> and would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. Truly God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment, their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. 
They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues stretched through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I might tell of all your works. This is God's word. Please have a seat. Well, again, here we see this psalmist dealing with an unmet expectation. And you can probably guess what that is. He's looking at those who, uh, the wicked, and they seem to be prospering. And he himself doesn't, be, doesn't seem to be experiencing the same things. And that can be hard. This, this, uh, the man who wrote this, it's a psalm of Asaph. He was one who would have worked in the temple. He would have been regularly about the Lord's business. So there could certainly be this expectation that if I'm about the Lord's business, things should go well. <laughs> I should find myself blessed. I mean, right, we understand these things. We, we think about the uh, Psalm 1, and if you read Psalm 1, it's all about that. Psalm 1, 1 through 4, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Or think of Proverbs 13, verse 21. Does, <coughs> excuse me. Disaster pursues sinners, but the righteous are rewarded with good. So here he is, he's serving in the temple and he finds these things are turned on their head. They're not working out the way he expects. So he begins to examine that. And that is so vitally important. You know, you think about the events that have unfolded this past week uh, in Nashville uh, with the, the shooting that happened in this Christian school. And for those of you who are not that familiar with it, this, this Christian school was at a Presbyterian church uh, that my sister used to be a member of. I visited that church. Uh, the pastor who was there has three boys and the youngest is a daughter. His daughter was nine years old and she was shot and killed in that time. I think of the parallels between my life and theirs. I have three boys and a girl, the girl being the youngest. I serve as a pastor at a Presbyterian church. 
I mean, I've worshipped in that Presbyterian church. And I wonder, how is it that people can do what they do, and yet, in the media, somehow still be claimed the victim and the one expounded? If you listen to the media, there weren't six victims, there were seven. And the people that it seems that those in charge are more concerned with are not the Christians who were shot, but the people like the one who was doing the shooting. You think, this doesn't seem to fit with expectations. You know, I look at my life as a pastor, and I think about where would I be if I weren't a pastor. You know, I have an electrical engineering degree. When I got out of college, I went to work for a consulting firm. And if I continued to work with that consulting firm, I look at those of my peers who stayed with it, well, they make, you know, half a million dollars a year. Instead, I decided to quit and go to seminary and earn another degree, a Master of Divinity degree, which I had to devote three full-time years to and spend all of my savings to accomplish so that I could get out and serve as a pastor and be underpaid for the rest of my life. You know, it's, that's frustrating. I think about people who have the, you know, the, the education that I've experienced and where they are in life and where I am, and there's a great disparity. And, you know, I know that shouldn't bother me, but it does bother me. There are times it's frustrating. We find ourselves, you know, living month to month, and I look at the world, and that's just not the case. And you think, well, that's not why you got into this. You didn't get into this for the money. You say, I'm certain, you're certainly right. I didn't get into it for the money. I knew that going into it. You know, I did go into it hoping to find there is great blessing in talking about the gospel to people and seeing the lights go on, seeing people's lives changed. You know, that was a motivation for me to go into it. But as you're serving as a pastor, you often, you do see that happening now and again, but more often you see people just tuning you out. I look around on a Sunday morning and I think, where are the people that should be here? That's what I think. You know, I've dedicated 18 years of preaching the truth and there's still people who find it more important to go do other things on a Sunday morning. That's aggravating. That doesn't meet expectations. You know, if I'm not going to be blessed financially, I should at least be blessed emotionally. I should at least be recognized. All these things go through my mind and there are expectations that are not met. And they can lead you to great degrees of frustration and anxiety and even bitterness. And that's exactly what the psalmist is dealing with here. He's dealing with anxiety. He's dealing with bitterness. He's dealing with the fact that things aren't unfolding the way I expected. So how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that? You know, how does that pastor in Nashville deal with that? How do I deal with that? And the psalmist walks us through three things. One, he, he invites us to examine, well, what is the source of the anxiety? What is the source of the doubt? And he explores those in this passage. That's the first thing he does. The second thing he does is he doesn't talk about it with the church. Now, that may seem an odd thing, but he shuts his mouth. So that's the second point. First point is he examines the source of these doubts. The second thing is he shuts his mouth. And the last thing he does as he goes into the sanctuary. So I just want to follow those through as kind of a model for what do you do when you face unmet expectations that cause you to be anxious, cause you to be frustrated, cause you to perhaps even doubt your faith or why you are where you are. 
And as we go and explore the beginning of this, what we see is he's examining what he, the source of his doubts. That's what he's doing. So if you look at in verse 4 through 12, this is what he's, this is what he's examining. He says, he's talking about the wicked, he says, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. This is his observation. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues stretch through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. That's an interesting statement, by the way. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. So he's describing these people. What he sees them is they're full of pride. They're arrogant. They're willing to be violent towards others. They're willing to oppress others to get themselves ahead. In essence, what they're boldly saying is, I am going to live my life as if God does not exist, as if he does not see, if he's not there. And the result of that, you would think, would be a bad thing. But what he's observing is, no, what this has worked out for is good, at least on the surface. He's prospering. He's succeeding. He's not getting sick. He's not dying. He's growing fat and sleek, which, by the way, would be a mark of someone who was wealthy. Everything seems to be lining up in his life because he was willing to live as if God does not exist. And that's his, that's his examination. He's examining this, and, and he's examining, what is this doing to me? It's, it, the fact that I'm here serving in the temple day after day, well, it's leaving me feeling rebuked. It's leaving me feeling oppressed. It's leaving me feeling utterly and completely frustrated day after day after day. So he's examining these Observations. He's recognizing that the reason he's feeling this way is because he's looking out, making observations of what he sees in the real world. And I think often we too tend to do that. We tend to let doubt creep in. We tend to let anxiety creep in because what we can see happening in the real world. Because if you're, if you're paying any attention to what's happening in the real world today, there are plenty of things that would certainly lead you to feel anxious, <coughs> angry, Unmet expectations are going on, especially for the believer. You know, the Christian is becoming more and more, it seems like, daily vilified. He is the source of oppression because he's teaching things that go against the recognition of certain types of actions as okay. And that seems to be the very measure of which all Christians are being evaluated. So if we just base our lives on what we observe happening in the world today, it certainly makes sense that we should not come back next week. We should abandon this whole charade and just embrace what the culture is saying to embrace that we might be affirmed and approved and be able to, to be in a position where we can experience this prosperity. Now, thankfully, the psalmist doesn't stop there. I think he does pause for a moment at last and examine, okay, this is what I can observe. This is the evidence that's out there. But is it the only evidence that exists? Is there more to be evaluated? Is there more to be understood? 
And you might say from, our, from his perspective, no, there's not. But he knows there is a vantage point that he's not yet stood to look at things. Because I really think, you know, if we are to understand life, we have to be able to see life from beyond our limited perspective. And until we can get to this perspective that's going to make sense out of things, we've got to keep our mouth shut. That's the next point. Because he says clearly, you know, if I had spoke all of these things that I was feeling and experiencing, this decision that I was about to make, I would have betrayed your people. There is a tension that he has yet to resolve in his own mind and in his heart. And during that time when it is unresolved, he's at least committed to not speaking it out loud to his people. And I want you to think about how that can affect other people, especially as someone who's meant to be serving in the church. Perhaps you could be introducing doubts and frustrations and anxieties that other people aren't ready to deal with, and you're planning them in their mind. I mean, when you think about how... I, I, you can look in different groups. For example, even sometimes small groups in a church where someone will make an observation based on their limited perspective, and they'll draw a conclusion that is perhaps wrong and perhaps even negative about somebody else in the church or some activity that they're doing, and they'll bring it up in their small group, and the small group doesn't really have any information to add, so they adopt that conclusion, even though it might be wrong, and, the, and in that group, they begin to fan it into a flame. They begin to affirm it in each other's mind, and it becomes a truth, whether or not it was real or not, it becomes so fixed in their minds that they can't operate outside of that truth. I've seen that happen in churches where it's a small group will do that, and instead of talking it out with people, they just all leave. On a conclusion that had they explored it or gotten a different perspective, may have found that things weren't quite the way they thought they were. But there is a danger, in other words, in talking too soon. There is, there is a right way, in other words, and a wrong way to deal with your frustrations and to deal with your anxieties and to deal with your doubts. I'm not saying you should suppress them. I'm not saying you shouldn't talk about them. But when and if you do, you need to do it from a vantage point that is beyond what you're able to see. And that really brings us to the highlight of the whole psalm, which we find in verse 16 and 17. When I forgot, or when I thought how to understand this, that is on my own, it seemed to me a wearisome task. All it did was drain me until, he says, I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. It's as though what the psalmist needed, he needed to be able to see his life and what he's observed from a different perspective. That, it reminds me, I think I used this illustration a few years ago, but before we moved to Texas, when I was living in Oklahoma, I worked downtown in a building on the 17th floor that overlooked this area that once a year in the spring held an arts festival. And it was a, it, it was a, a fun event to go to, and uh, this one particular year, Rhonda was going to meet me down at the Arts Festival for lunch. And uh, as she got there, there was a lot of other people who had the same idea, and it was very crowded. So the streets were packed, the traffic was bad, the parking was, was nearly full everywhere, and she was getting exasperated. And so she called me up, says, I can't find a parking place. I said, well, wait just a minute. And I went over to the window. And guess what? From the 17th floor, well, I could see everything. <laughs> I could see where the empty parking places were. I could see where the traffic was backed up, and I told her, okay, you need to turn right here. She says, that doesn't make any sense. Just do it. She turns right and turns left. Oh, there's a parking place. 
What did she need? She needed a perspective that was beyond her own to make sense and to navigate through the frustrations and the obstacles. And that is exactly what we need. So when he goes into the sanctuary, that's what he's getting. We need the perspective of someone who is actually omniscient. Someone who can see the past and the future and the present and the true condition of what things are. And so immediately when he goes into the sanctuary, what does he, what does he find to be true? He says, he discerned their end. The end of who? The end of those who lived their life as if there were no God. And what does he observe? What does he discern? Verses 18 through 20. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Now, this is their final end. Now, this may not have happened until they reach an old age and die. Yet in the grand scheme of eternity, it's, that's pretty instant. I mean, when you think about it, we have an omniscient God who tells us, you have eternity in your future. And what is 70 years, 60 years, 80 years, but just a blip compared to eternity? And you think, if I don't have this perspective, then yeah, it makes sense to live as though there's no tomorrow, there is no God. But if I do have this perspective, if eternity is out there in the future, then it would certainly make sense to live in accord with this perspective. So this is the first thing that we get out of this being in the sanctuary. But he goes on, and I, I love what happens to the psalmist here. He doesn't, by the way, he doesn't, it's not as though this psalm unpacks all the doctrines that we might need to, to know to, to, to reveal all the unmet expectations that we might have. But what we do find in this psalm is when he goes into the sanctuary, um, this is what he finds to be the, the case in verse 23 uh, and following. I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Now, there are things about going into the sanctuary, the temple of God in the days of the Old Testament, that would have spoke to him just because he's there. One, the fact that the temple represents the place that God has put his name. The temple is a place where the Holy of Holies is, where the Ark of the Covenant is contained. Inside that Ark of the Covenant was the covenant that God had given to Moses that defined their relationship to his people. He says, I am making you a tr my treasured possession. I have brought you out of the hands of Pharaoh in Egypt, set you free from your slavery, and I've brought you to myself that I can be your God and you can be my people. So all those things speak about the truth of what he's realizing about his people. But beyond those simple truths that are evident in being in the temple, this is what he says, you hold my right hand. That's a pretty personal thing to do. That communicates a presence. You hold my right hand and you guide me with your counsel. You can picture God grabbing him by the hand and leading him, navigating through the difficulties that he's facing. Now, I don't know what unmet expectations that you're dealing with in your life that may be causing you anxiety or causing you doubts. But this is the truth that we find. When you go into the sanctuary 
and you experience the presence of God, He will hold your hand and He will lead you to the place where you need to stand to see things clearly to deal with that doubt. To examine that anxiety. What is it that's going to speak to that? You know, for example, in the case of something that, uh, like what happened in Nashville, you know, here is something that cries out for justice. And it certainly seems there is no real justice to be had. There's no way to make things right. So what does the vantage point of the temple tell us there? It tells us there is a day coming. There is a day coming when the dead will be resurrected. There is a day coming when all the wrongs will be shown and how they fit in such a way that brings glory to those that belong to God. We get to a vantage point where we see that Jesus died on the cross for a reason. It wasn't that he had failed in coming into Jerusalem as king. It was that is exactly what was needed in order to succeed in being a king for a people who were no longer under the terror of death. For the only way they could get through this death that lie in every one of their future was for their king to face the ultimate death, the judgment of God on their behalf, so that when they faced that day of judgment, they could hear the words, not guilty, not guilty. Come into the house that I have prepared for you. And look back on history and see how all of the hard things that you went through, that all of my people went through, had some purpose in order to prepare you for this day or to prepare God's people for this day. I don't think there's a way for us to begin to possibly explain those struggles until we get to that vantage point. I don't want to purport to be able to explain why things happened in Nashville. I have no idea. Other than there will be a day when there will be a, a vantage point that God will lead his people to and he will allow them to look back and see how it makes sense. Our job in the meantime is to live by faith and hold the hand of the omniscient God rather than to live only by what we can see happening in this world. Because I think the days are coming when things are going to get harder and harder more and more stressful. There are going to be more and more reasons to doubt your faith, more and more reasons to feel anxious, more and more reasons to feel bitter or anger. We better be prepared to understand how we deal with those. There's only one place you can go for the perspective that you need, and that is into the arms of God that we find locally in the sanctuary. I mean, this place is the place where the living stones have been brought together in order to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is a place where we come regularly to be reminded that God is real and He is present and He is all-knowing. And one day, you will understand. In the meantime, Hold his hand and let him give you counsel 
and guide you to the place where you need to stand for this moment. And the guarantee of all of those things is the fact that God did not withhold the one thing most precious to him in order to make sure you understand that he loves you. That there is no length to which he would go to to ensure your well-being, to ensure your future. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for psalms like this, which walk us through a way in which we can deal with our anxieties and our unknowns, our doubts. You show us how to wrestle through them. You, you assure us that you will indeed hold us by the right hand and give us counsel to lead us to where we need to stand to endure whatever it is that we may be facing when we find ourselves with unmet expectations specifically related to our faith. Father, we are thank you that Jesus Christ was willing to go to the cross to face your judgment so that we might be declared righteous with his righteousness. We are so thankful that he rose from the dead to, make, to communicate clearly that this indeed is the case, that he has defeated death on our behalf. Lord, would you help us to walk in great confidence this morning that you are here and that you are good and that you have a perspective that we need. In Jesus' name, amen.